You know, prayer is, in its essence, communication with God, and I'm convinced that the more dependent we are upon the Lord, the more we see our dependence, the more prayerful we, we will be as a, as a people. And so, with God's Word open before us now, uh, with our desire to grow up and into the likeness of Jesus more and more, I want to just ask, can we do that again? Can we pray one more time? We'll go to the Lord and ask for His help. Holy Spirit, we do, as we have just sung, ask that You would cause Your church to hunger for Your Word. Lord, grow us in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. We thank You, Lord, that you have, You've not just created us. You've not just sustained us and, and, and given your life, Jesus, to save us, but you have, you have equipped us, Lord, to grow and to serve, to, to be trained in godliness as your word does for us. And, and so we pray now, Lord, would you train us? Would you teach us? Would you challenge and sharpen us so that we can glorify Jesus more acutely, more, more sharply, Father. We need you, God. And we, we pray that by the power of your matchless spirit, now you would help us. Guard us, Lord, from error as we approach your holy scripture and guide us in your truth. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Well, it, is, it was with trembling hands and uh, butterflies in my stomach that I presented Lindsay Kaplan with a diamond ring on the day that I asked her to marry me. And immediately upon receiving her answer, which was yes, <laughs> not sure how or why, but it was yes, Lindsay took that ring and she tossed it in a box, and I don't think she's looked at it again since. How many of you actually believe that? Of course, that's not what happened. We were on Tybee Island outside, off the coast of Savannah, Georgia, and uh, oh, that glorious... I was just wiped. I think I just slept. I, I got to the, the room where I was standing and just collapsed in a pile of nerd on the, on the bed, and Lindsay just stayed up and just, just looked at the glinting diamond and, and called people uh, all, throughout, all throughout the evening. I bet my wife knows every nook and cranny of that diamond ring on her hand because precious gems aren't meant to be merely glanced at and then forgotten. Their beauty is meant to be savored and considered from every angle. Well, today, as we've said, is Pentecost Sunday, so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll take a break from Luke part 1, Luke's gospel, and we'll zero in just for this week on Luke's second work, the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and as you're turning to Acts chapter 2, I'd encourage you to have your Bibles open. We're going to use it to make all of our points. It's our source for, for all authority and truth. If using the, the church Bibles that we have available here in the seat back in front of you, Acts chapter 2 is located on page 855. 
Just as we have considered recently the significance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ at Christmas time, and then even more recently, the resurrection at Easter, we thought it would be appropriate to consider today the climactic events of Acts chapter 2 as we celebrate and remember the significance of Pentecost. There is a Scottish pastor and theologian who's been very helpful to me uh, in life and ministry. His name is Sinclair Ferguson, and Ferguson has aptly likened this passage in Acts chapter 2, Acts, uh, Pentecost, he's likened this chapter to a jewel, and one that you've got to turn around slowly as you consider it to admire its different facets and dimensions. There is simply no way that we're going to be able to take in all of the beauty of the gem that is Acts chapter 2, the the gift of God's Spirit as He gives it to His church here in this climactic passage. So so our prayer this morning is simply, Lord, would, would you help? Would you help open our eyes to behold Christ a little more clearly? to see and to savor the ministry of of God's very Spirit just a a little better and to grow up and into it so we can follow Him with whole hearts. Let me invite you to read now this gem that is Acts chapter 2. We'll read the uh, most of the chapter, the beginning verse verse 1 and through to verse 41, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging, excuse me, to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifting up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. 
And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, brothers, And said to Peter, excuse me, and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a gem right there. And I would like to offer, as we begin, just unpacking our way through Acts chapter 2, a disclaimer as we begin, 
You see, it's very common, particularly when it comes to the person and the work and the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, for people to lead out with their experience and to build a grid of understanding around that, around their personal anecdotal experience, rather than approaching the truth of God's Word given to us by this same Spirit about the role of the Spirit and who He is and what He does among His people. So friends, my my exhortation, my, my pastoral encouragement to you this morning is simply that we would keep our eyes fixed on the Scriptures and not let our own personal anecdotal experiences drive. Now, because this gem of a Scripture is so glorious, it's so rich, it's so nuanced and thick, we, uh, we're going to need some help. There's just no way we're even going to be able to... to Tip the very tippy top of the iceberg of God's truth, truth here. So I'd like us to, to drill down on, to focus in on five different aspects of this glorious work of Pentecost that we see right here in the text of Acts 2. And, um, and I don't know if often do this, um, but uh, I don't know, cheese ball alert. I decided today that I was going to practice some alliteration. And so, uh, so the I've got five things for you, and they all start with the letter C. Don't worry about writing them down. If, if they're worth it in your brain later, you can, you can do that as we unpack them. But we're going to see, if you, uh, if you look broadly throughout the scope of Acts 2, first, the context of Pentecost. Then we'll see the criticism of Pentecost. Thirdly, we'll look at the center of Pentecost. Then the catalytic, uh, excuse me, catalytic, catalytic gift, hopefully I can say it when we get there, the gift, the catalyst of Pentecost, and finally we'll end by considering the culmination of Pentecost. All right, let's start with the context. What's the context of this glorious moment in redemptive history that we call Pentecost? Well, we get the name Pentecost from a Greek word. It's simply a form of the Greek word for the number 50. Penta, pent, 50. And, and we get that word in Greek because this, this Pentecost was actually a feast that was held on the 50th day after the Jewish feast of the first fruits. And if you want to learn more about the, the feast and its significance, it really is thick and beautiful. You can go to Leviticus 23. You can write that down and spend some time there this week. We're going to keep moving, but, but that's where we get the name Pentecost from. Pent, uh, 50, uh, the, and it's 50 days after the feast of the first fruits. If you're wondering why 50, well, God prescribed in the Old Testament seven sevens, or a week of seven, 49 days plus one after the Feast of Weeks, and we've arrived here at the the Feast of Pentecost. Now, why is this important? I, uh, if I can, just indulge me for a moment, I want to share with you why I'm belaboring the significance of Pentecost and seeing it in its biblical context. 
This isn't just nerd stuff. I don't just want to want to help you like an academic understand something better. I want you to see and savor Jesus, and and doing that helps uh, when we see Scripture in its full and broader context. We can do that more fully and more truly. Let me give you a for instance. A, a few weeks back, I was away at a pastors' conference in uh, Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Some of you may be familiar with Parkside Church and uh, Alistair Begg, who uh, who ministered. There, I, I love that conference and try to attend it yearly uh, as I can. And anyway, I'm at this pastor's conference, and one of the fe- featured sessions there a few weeks back was a Q&A where Alistair Begg and several of the other keynote speakers were featured, and they were doing some questions. As a matter of fact, I just saw on YouTube that video was posted. It's already got, like a week out, 13,000 views. The first question that they kicked off with after this uh, uh, conference was about halfway done or two-thirds of the way done uh, in this Q&A was this. Listen, listen to the question. What practical things, people just asking questions to these well-known uh, pastors and theologians, what practical things do you do to remember to bring your Bible with you to the pulpit? And as that question was asked, you can hear on the video, the audience just roars. I mean, they're dying. Like, that was, that was the most hilarious thing anybody could have said. Now, if you watch that video and you haven't been to the conference, you might be thinking, like, pastors are weird, man. Like, why is that even funny? Well, context matters. You see, if you're just watching that video and you hear that weird question, to these like well-known pastors, what do you do to remember to bring your Bible to the pulpit? You're like, what is even going on? But if you were there, like I was, you'll know that Alistair Begg, the host of the conference and one of the keynote speakers, stood up to deliver his first sermon, and he forgot his Bible. And he was like scrambling around trying to fill time. I think he almost resorted to like juggling or something. Someone like went to go find a Bible and and bring it to him. And man, after that, it was great. They were merciless. The other speakers at the conference, they just kept busting his chops the whole time. So finally, we get to the Q&A and they ask real serious, what do you do to to remember your Bible, to bring your Bible to the pulpit? And, And everybody lost it, myself included. I was one of those voices that was last laughing. What's my point? You don't get the joke unless you know the proper context. Not even funny. It doesn't even make sense unless you're there. So let's see here as we're looking at Pentecost, the proper context. And I think we need to look at the context in two dimensions, if you will. We're going to first consider the near and immediate context of Acts chapter 2, and then we're going to zoom out, as we like to say, and look at the broader context. So near context, far context, so that as we're looking at Acts chapter 2 and these glorious events, we can put them into proper perspective. All right, let's start with the immediate uh, context in Acts. You just stay here in Acts chapter 2 and, and, and look a few verses earlier into Acts 1. The immediate context is Jesus' ascension into heaven. This is amazing. So if you're in Acts 2, just kind of fl- flip a, a few verses before that or scan a few verses before that. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the grave. It's after his resurrection where he purchased your salvation and mine, if you're indeed in Christ. And he's about to ascend into heaven. And before he does, the disciples ask him a question. 
Let's read Acts 1, beginning in verse 6. This is, this is the background now. I want you to see this is the context for Pentecost. Acts 1, beginning in verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, they being his disciples, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But, verse 8, if you're somebody who marks your Bible, you want to you mark verse 8 in Acts chapter 1. But, you, you, you're not the ones to know God's ways, God's timing. But, you will know this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Side point. I think the answer should be pretty obvious. This is amazing. (laughs) They just watched Jesus, right? Just ascend into the heavens. They continue, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, that'll preach, but, but we're not staying here in Acts chapter 1. What, what I want you to see is that everything changes when Jesus' promise comes to fruition. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And the disciples do indeed, as we've just read in Acts chapter 2, receive power from on high. Now look back in Acts 2, that word for power is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite from. This is explosive power that empowers them and enables them to live a very different way than before this very moment. If you'll remember the disciples of the Gospels, act and operate in a very different way than the disciples post-Pentecost. Explosive power, dynamite power, dunamis. However, we'd be remiss just to stop here. I, I mean, it's important, I think, that we see Acts 2 is a fulfillment of Jesus direct and near His immediate promise just days before that they were to wait and, and they were going to receive otherworldly, explosive power. Now, what we also must understand as we're working through this Pentecost passage on this Pentecost Sunday is that in order to understand this thing, you've not just got to see Jesus' words from a few days before. You've got to reach way back, like generations, like centuries back into the Old Testament to see the far context. And what we do as we reach back into the Old Covenant is we learn that this was always, Pentecost was always God's plan. Peter's about to bottom line it for us. So if you're in two now, Acts chapter two, look at verse 16 with me. 
There's a lot of places we can go here, but this is a very big deal. And Mike just uh, read a moment ago, or led us in reading responsively through this incredible prophetic pronouncement. This this is from Joel chapter 2. There are three times as Peter stands up to preach where he says, it's not what you think it is. They're not drunk. Let me share. Three Old Testament prophecies, and this is what he leads out with. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Again, we've just read them together. Peter says, verse 16, This, i.e. Pentecost, i.e. this mighty rushing wind and people, Galileans, backwoods Galileans, speaking fluently and praising God in all kinds of different languages. The whole city is turned upended. And, Paul, and Peter says, I'll tell you what it is. It's this. Reach way back, folks. It's Joel 2. This is what Joel uttered when God said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and they'll prophesy. And he goes on. So, you see it now? Near context, the Holy Spirit's coming in Acts 2. His being poured out was a response to Jesus' promise and his command, it was also God's plan all along. It's what God had promised to do in his new covenant community. Joel 2. Now, connecting the dots, no matter how faithfully, will never silence on this side of the sun the mocking and the scorn that exists from the world around us. We see this, don't we, here? The, the mocking and the opposition. Look at verse 13. I think it's important that we don't just gloss over this. We also see in Pentecost criticism, the criticism of Pentecost. The sound is overwhelming, right? The, 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 the mighty rushing wind and the, and the speaking in, in many tongues. People start to flock from all over the city. Peter's response, verse 15, to their mocking solution, rolling their eyes, They're just drunk. Peter says, what are you talking about? Verse 15, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. The phrase literally is it's the third hour of the day. The day would have begun at 6 a.m. then, so it's the third hour of the day. It's it's 9 a.m. Peter says, wrong. Fun fact, later the apostle Paul would use the illustration of being drunk of being literally, physically controlled by wine to contrast and compare in a way being controlled and led by the Holy Spirit. That that comes later. First of all, what I want us to see before we move on in this Pentecost passage is that right from the beginning and continuing to today, friends, God's people encounter opposition. So how we apply this to our lives? Simple. Expect it. Expect it. I think so much of life is knit into what we're expecting to get out of this. In, in marriage and in, and in work and in, and in health and in recreation and all these things, our expectations matter. They matter deeply. So if you're expecting to follow Jesus and have a paved road... It's just sunshiny every day. Good luck in Pittsburgh. 
filled with roses and flowers and kittens. I don't know. Pick your, pick your flowery things. It's not a biblical picture. And, and if you expecting to walk that way with Christ, encounter opposition as it comes, man, you're going to be thrown off kilter, aren't you? But if you hear the words of Christ, and a servant's not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, what do you think they're going to do to you? The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. If following Christ, you have a right expectation that there's going to be some sand between the sheets. That there's going to be some struggle, internal struggle, external struggle. Expect opposition, friends, and you will not be blown off kilter when it comes. After all, we're in a war, a war that rages for the souls of men and women being made in the image of God. Expect opposition. It comes at every turn. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not from God. All right. Next observation. We've seen the context of Pentecost briefly. We've, we've looked at the, the criticism of Pentecost and Peter correcting that criticism. Let's look at a third element of this glorious event, and that is the center of Pentecost. I want you to see what's at the very core of Pentecost. Ready? Well, I'll ask, you, I'll ask you by way of a question. Who or what do you think this passage is really all about? Who or what is really the core of this Pentecost moment? How many of you would say, well, it's about the Holy Spirit? Y'all are scared. <laughs> well... The Holy Spirit is certainly a very big deal. No Holy Spirit, no Acts 2, no Christianity, no salvation. But, but please look a little closer here with me. And I think that what you'll see is at the very center, at the very nexus, at the very core of Acts chapter 2 is actually Jesus. I mean, just do this little exercise for me. Not now. If you're, if you're curious, prove it, Zeb. Okay. Go through Acts chapter 2 and count up the number of times that you see Christ referenced, and then count up the number of times that you see the Holy Spirit referenced. You might be surprised to find that Christ is there more, referenced more often than the Holy Spirit. We're not contrasting them with one another. They're one of the same essence. We worship a triune God, one God eternally existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're not in competition, but I want you to see where the Holy Spirit, who wrote this book, all Scripture is breathed out by God. By the way, that word breathe, breath, same word. Spirit. Are you surprised to hear this? That Jesus is at the very center of the Holy Spirit chapter in Acts chapter 2. I don't, I don't think you should be. One more little metric before, before we get to the punchline, I hope. The, 
the Old Testament passages that Peter cites as he's explaining what's going on here. There's three of them. He, he quotes from Joel chapter 2, from Psalm 16, from Psalm 110. And as Peter is giving the explanation of what's going on, the first passage deals squarely with the Holy Spirit coming. That's what we've been talking about in Joel 2. But two of the other three Old Testament citations are dealing and pointing squarely at the person and work of Jesus, the Son. Beginning in verse 25, take a look. He's, he's quoting Psalm 16. Peter's going into Jesus' resurrection. Skip ahead to verse 34. He's quoting from Psalm 110. What's he talking about? Jesus' ascension. Are you surprised that when the Holy Spirit shows up in a unique and unprecedented way, it's Jesus who's featured? Don't be. Remember Jesus' words about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16? John 16, 13 to 15? When the Spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. The Holy Spirit never does. But whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. Listen now. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. Who? Jesus. For He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see this beautiful Trinitarian unity? All that the Father has is mine, and and all that's mine, the Holy Spirit's going to give to you. You see the beauty and the unity? The Holy Spirit delights in glorifying Christ the Son. That's what He does. That's what Jesus said He would do. When you see the Holy Spirit show up in power and in truth, guess who's featured? Jesus. Every time. Sometimes we can get fixated on the fruit of the Holy Spirit's coming, and it is fantastic. It is miraculous. It's amazing. But the the external manifestations of the Spirit's working are always only ever meant to magnify, to glorify, to center in the person and work of Christ the Son. Do you see it? The primary ministry of the Spirit is to make much of Jesus. Jesus is at the center. He's at the climax of Acts chapter 2, such that when the crowd is cut to the heart, look now, verse 37, when the crowd is cut to the heart, what do they do? What do they say? Let me tell you what they don't do. The apostles don't say to this, what do we do question? By the way, that's like the best question ever, right? People see Someone following the Lord, they see the power, they see the beauty, and they say, yes, tell me what to do. What did did Peter and the apostles not say? Well, just do what we're doing. 
Just speak like we're speaking. Is that, that? No. The answer, verse 38, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name. The name is the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Identify with Jesus. That's what we talked about last week as we saw and experienced baptism. Amy Kushner saying, man, my life has been a mess, but I'm with Jesus. Right? My only hope is Jesus. And she was baptized into His name. Repent. That's a change of direction. And identify with Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. This is what you get. Peter says you get the forgiveness of your sins, you get righteousness before God, and here's what else you get. You will receive, look at verse 39, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So finally now, we get to this gift. Our fourth observation about Pentecost, about Acts 2, is that what we have in Pentecost is a catalytic gift an incomparable, invaluable gift. Remember, He, and I want to point out, when the Holy Spirit is referred to in the Bible, He's always a He. Not an it. He's not a force. He's not a she. The Holy Spirit is always a He. When He, the Holy Spirit, shows up, This promised gift that Jesus said would come in Acts chapter 1. We see this remarkable, catalytic power. The people are seeing and hearing it here. And Peter says, verse 33, this is the Spirit. This catalytic power that's blowing your minds is the Spirit of God that's been poured out because Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. Which begs the question, if the power, the dunamis, the dynamite power from on high through God the Holy Spirit is coming here in Acts chapter 2 to a very definite group of people, then what's that mean for us in 2023? Let me ask the question this way. Who's the Holy Spirit for? Who's the power for? Look at the end of verse 38 and and verse 39 right here. The Bible always has the answer. Who gets the gift? For the promise is for you, Peter says to the crowd, and for your children and for all who are far off. Man, that's good news for us. For all who are far off, verse 39. Friends, what a glorious truth. What an incomparable gift. God's plan for His people in the new covenant is that all those who would belong to Jesus would be indwelt with His very own Spirit. What do you get when you get saved? You get God. I think this is important for us to remind ourselves of every once in a while, every often while. (laughs) 
Why is heaven so good? Because God is there. He's restoring His presence with His people. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eye. We get God in heaven. In His presence, Psalm 16, is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why why can we have hope in this complicated, confused, dark, and painful world? Because we get God. God the Spirit. It's for all who are far off. It's for their children in Christ. I uh, Forgive me, I didn't put these slides together for you, but, but if you just want some biblical proof, which I think you should be looking for at this point in time, I'm going to give you three quick verses. You can jot them down if you want. First verse. This is, please take this to the bank. This is such a big deal. Romans 8, 9, which tells us that if you don't have the Holy Spirit of God, you don't belong to Jesus. Who gets the Holy Spirit? Everybody in Christ. There is not one man, woman, or child in Christ who does not have Christ's Spirit, Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. That seems pretty black and white to me. No Spirit, no Jesus. Romans 8, 9. It's for all in Christ who are far off. We're all baptized into the same Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And we learn in Ephesians 1 that it is this same Spirit who seals us like the signet ring of Almighty God, who seals us and guarantees our eternal inheritance. Friends, what a gift. What a gift that the God the Spirit is to us. So, if all who are in Christ have the indwelling Holy Spirit, do all who are in Christ and have this Spirit do what we see here going on in Acts chapter 2? The testimony of Scripture, friends, is that the Spirit sovereignly chooses and dispenses gifts in different ways. Not everyone who has the gift of the Spirit, i.e. every Christian, has the same outworking or manifestation of gifts in his life. Here in chapter 2 of Acts, we see speaking in tongues. Question, is that for everyone? I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to read Scripture, okay? Is this for everyone? 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to 31. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, Third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? He's speaking rhetorically. 
Are all apostles? No. Benjamin just told us the other day there were criteria for apostles, capital A. Are all teachers? Does everybody have the gift of teaching? Nope. Are all gifted? Do all work miracles? No, no, no. Listen now, verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 12. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No, no, no. These are gifts from God the Holy Spirit. You know a funny thing about the gift? Any gift. You don't choose it. It's given to you. Now, I would be remiss not to say we are instructed in the same passage to earnestly desire the higher gifts. God the Holy Spirit is sovereign, and He gives gifts at His prerogative. And I don't know about you, but I'm praying on a regular basis, Lord, grow me up in this gift. Fan these gifts into flame, Lord, as, as Paul writes to Timothy. Would you show me and grow me in the greater gifts? That's a biblical prayer. But it's not true. And there's a, there's a school within Christianity, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, who would presume to say that in order, in order to be varsity, in order to really be on God's team and operating well, you've got to have this gift Described in Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues. I, I just, I, I don't see it. Not all have the gift. Not all have the gift. Being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God is not the same as being filled with the Spirit of God. We've got to see that. I want, you to, I want you to think about where uh, Peter was addressing earlier in the passage, the scoffers, the mockers. What was he saying? They're not drunk. It's 9 a.m. You know, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine. It's like half of the book of Proverbs. <laughs> but, for that's debauchery, but instead be filled with, with the Holy Spirit. Boy, this is fascinating. The Holy Spirit, through Paul the Apostle, is instructing the people of God not to be filled, not to be controlled with wine, but instead to be controlled by something else. To be filled, to be controlled, to be overcome and directed by. I'm dancing around the word inebriated. I want to be careful and respectful and reverent. We need to be absolutely controlled by the Holy Spirit, like a substance would control us. But this is God, the perfect Spirit. Now, he's talking to people who are Christians, who already are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And what's he command them to do? Be filled with the Spirit. They've got it. But having the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit are two different things. We're instructed in Galatians 5, 16. Walk by the Spirit. 
You're not walking anywhere with the Spirit if you don't have it, have Him, excuse me. But there's a way of walking more closely, just like there's a way of grieving the Holy Spirit, of quenching the Spirit. All right. Last thing here as we draw to a close. There's a lot more here, and I pray this week as we, as we consider Pentecost and its glory and its beauty, like, like that diamond ring, you just would, would read it over and over again and turn it around and look at it from different angles. There's so much here, but I want to close by pointing you to the culmination of Pentecost. Friends, please don't miss the big picture. Pentecost is a glorious picture of what's to come. You know that? There's this interesting little passage. It's fascinating. In Genesis 11, those of us who were studying on Wednesday nights through the book of Genesis just went here. Anyone know what's in Genesis 11? Babel. Remember how they built a tower in their pride and in their disobedience to God, they built a tower that was going to reach to the heavens, or so they thought. And God came down in His judgment and frustrated their language and scattered them all abroad. Genesis 11, pretty big deal. The Tower of Babel. What do we have in Pentecost? Look now. At Pentecost, we have the beginnings of a reversal of Babel, don't we? One language that gets confused and confounded among many people. And now, here at this climactic moment in redemptive history, God brings people from every tribe and language and nation and people, as it were, and gathers them together, and they're speaking these different languages, and yet they are united under the lordship of Jesus. And they're speaking languages they had no idea. No one taught them these languages. It's breaking people's categories in their minds. Listen, Pentecost, friends, is a glorious picture, just a taste of what's coming. It started in Babel. It started with sin. Now look at, if you would, or jot it down. I'll just read it for you in closing. Revelation chapter 7. I hope this sounds familiar. We go here often on purpose. Listen to this picture as the heavens, as it were, get opened for us. And John the Apostle writes of what's to come. Revelation 7, 9-12. After this, John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out, oh, so good, with a, with a loud voice. They said, salvation belongs to our God. It's His who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell with their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. How's this thing end? 
Well, it ends with people who are far off, kind of like you and me, gathered around the throne of God Most High and around the, thr- and around the throne of, of the Lamb and in the presence of the Lamb with every tribe and nation and people and language. Listen, every language. And what do we have at the end? God redeeming Babel. God taking all of our languages and using them and directing them toward the worship of the Lamb. This is Pentecost. This is where Pentecost is pointing. The Holy Spirit of God. Magnifying the Son of God to the glory of God the Father. This is where we're going. We sang at the beginning of our service, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. There will be a thousand tongues singing His praise. And so I'd like us now as we close in prayer, just having considered... (laughs) Just a a few simple dimensions of this glorious gem of God's gift, the Holy Spirit, to His people by singing the song, There is a Redeemer. Listen to the lyrics you're about to sing and pray as Ruthann comes up. Thank you, O my Father, for giving us Your Son and leaving Your Spirit till Your work on earth is done. Let's pray. God, we're overwhelmed by the goodness of your gift to us, the gift of your very self, Lord, that you would give us of your spirit. Oh, how needy we are, Lord, how desperate to grow in the grace of your spirit, to walk in step with your spirit, to be filled and controlled by your spirit, Lord. Would you fill us for the glory of Jesus? for the testimony of the world, for the building up of the church, Lord, would you grow us in the grace of Christ by the power of your matchless Spirit poured out that day on Pentecost. Lord, thank you that you have given us your very Spirit. Now, Lord, give us confidence to grow in Him. May we sing and mean it as we walk and pray. Thank you, Father for giving us your Son, and for leaving us your Spirit till the work is done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.